So I am, just to give you a little bit about myself, I am newly the director of the Briarwood Fellows. I just took over from Seth Richardson, and so I work right up the hill these days, and so I'm uh, an in the process of being ordained as an assistant pastor here, and um, I'm happy to come and be teaching you guys on Tuesday nights. I, the series that I have planned for us, I call The Anatomy of the Soul. It's a series of teachings of, of I get preaching, you'll find out, um, that I call, so sermons, about the nature of emotions. What, does emotion, what do emotions look like? What is their purpose? Why did God make us as emotional creatures? You know, he could have just made us like Vulcans, you know, from like Star Trek. Maybe I'm too old. And just made us emotionless things. But he didn't. He made us emotional beings. And therefore, emotions are a good thing. They're not a thing to be... Uh, set aside a thing to be avoided, a thing to be disdained and looked down on. You, you, if you look down on them, you're looking down on a good gift that God has given you. And so that's the whole point of this series, is to teach us about what emotions are, teach us about their nature, their purpose, and how we can exercise the grace and Holy Spirit-empowered self-control that can allow us not to be dominated by our emotions and not to just stuff and hide our emotions, but to be in control of them and to use them for God's glory. So, here's a quote. Jonathan and I were talking about Martin Lloyd-Jones earlier, and so I just so happened to be opening with a Martin Lloyd-Jones quote. For those who don't know who that is, that's fine. He's a, a British pastor. Uh, from a while back. He says this, I regret, I regard it as a great part of my calling in the ministry to emphasize the priority of the mind and the intellect in connection with faith. And we do that as Presbyterians, right? You've gotten that your whole life. If you've grown up in Presbyterian circles, reform circles, you've infa- what's the emphasis? Your mind. How do you worship God? How do you love God? Love him with your mind. That's the most important. Yeah, sure. Love him with your heart, soul, strength, all of that. But your mind's the most important one. Lloyd-Jones goes on. But though I maintain that I am equally ready to assert that the feelings, the emotions, the sensibilities, obviously are of very vital importance. We have been made in such a way that emotions play a dominant part in our makeup. A dominant part in our makeup. Indeed, I suppose that one of the greatest problems in our life, in this world, not only for Christians, but for all people, is the right handling of our feelings and emotions. Oh, the havoc that is wrought and the tragedy, the misery and the wretchedness that are to be found in the world simply because people do not know how to handle their own feelings. Does that resonate with anybody? Is there havoc, destruction, chaos in your life because you don't know what to do when you're feeling angry? You don't know what to do when you're feeling scared, anxious. You don't even know what to do when you're feeling happy. When you're doing, happiness can be one of the most da- dangerous emotions because we don't suspect it to mislead us. But emotions in themselves are not good or bad. It's what you do with them that makes them good or bad. And so we need to learn the right handling of emotions. He continues, Man is so constituted that the feelings 
are in this very prominent position. And indeed, there is a very good case for saying that perhaps the final thing, the final thing, the ultimate goal, which, which regeneration and the new birth do for us, is to put the mind and the emotions and the will in their right positions. You follow that? In their right positions. The way we think, we have these three capacities, right? We have these three capacities. We have the mind, the, the capacity to think, to reason, to uh, pull things apart, to, to use words inside our head. Do you understand what a power that is? It's an amazing power that God has given us to think and hold things in our mind. And this is one of our capacities. And then we have, we've been given the duty and the privilege to be able to choose. You make real choices and they matter. That should blow your mind if you think about it long enough. Your choices matter. You know, God doesn't need you, right? He does not need you. He can do it all on his own. But he wants to work through you and he's chosen to do that because he wants to partner with you in life. And so he's given you this capacity to choose, which is real. And then he's given you this capacity to feel. And what do we do with these things? Here's what we do. We tend to go and we tend to think about the relationship between these three capacities like this. Well, the mind is the most important, especially if we're, if we're you know, Presbyterians, Reformed believers. The mind is the most important. And then the will is really important too. And if you can get your emotions squared away, that's great, but it's not really a big deal. I would contend that that is absolutely the wrong way to think about it. There is not a priority list of your capacities. They exist in relationship to each other. And the goal of sanctification, what God is doing in regenerating you, remaking you, is He's bringing those capacities in line with each other and putting them in the right proportions, in the right place, in the right relationship to each other. So that's one of the things we're going to be exploring in the coming weeks is how, do our, how does our mind and our will and our emotions, how do they function in right relationship to each other? We're not going to be prioritizing one over the other, but they have a right relationship. So... The first, my, I got a couple of points. I want to talk about the, the nature of emotions first. So what are emotions? What is an emotion? Emotions are response to stimulus. That's the fancy, your college students, any psychology majors, you know, or there's a response to stimulus. Something happens out here, I see it, and I make an evaluation in my mind of what's going on. That evaluation then triggers something in my body, Something immaterial in me, it triggers an emotional response. For example, let's say you are hiking along, you go on a hike, you're hiking along, and you start to hear a low growl coming from the bushes. Say you're in Utah or somewhere like that. You're hearing this growl. What do you, what do you assess? You start to think, right? You make an evaluation. Things that growl can eat me. If it's uh, bears, <laughs> things that growl, let's see, I, bears, mountain lions, cougars. You know, if, if it's growling, I'm probably within uh, earshot of something that would love to have me for lunch. So you've made this evaluation to the external stimulus. Then what happens? Your body starts, your body triggers. It fires into fear mode, fight or flight. 
It starts to release endorphins. It starts to shunt blood away from your digestive system. And it starts to pump blood into your muscles so that you can run or so that you can fight. And there's actually this really interesting study that they've done about uh, the difference between fear and anger. When you get angry, there's actually more blood gets pumped to your upper body. Your body knows whether it wants to fight or, fl- or flee, even, in response to something. But when you're, when you're responding in fear, the more, more blood gets to your legs so you can run. Your body is that in tune and in that responsive to your evaluation of what's going on outside of you. And that's what emotions are. They're this bodily internal response to external things. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, several. We're going to talk about four. There are eight primary emotions. And throughout this series, we're going to talk about four of them. The eight, one, the eight are happiness, grief, trust, disgust, fear, anger, amazement, and anticipation. And they sort of function like this. You know, you, you never feel one thing at a time, right? You can feel happy. And, you, ever, you guys see that movie, um, the one about emotions, the Pixar one. What's it called? Uh, Inside Out, right? It's like the whole, what's the whole point of the movie? What does emotional maturity look like? The realization that you can feel more than one thing at a time. That happiness and grief can coexist. That anger and fear are not mutually exclusive. And that's what emotional maturity looks like. So emotions, these, these eight primary emotions, they function like... You guys ever, get, you ever done painting? You ever gone to, the, to Lowe's to buy paint? And you, you go and you get the can... Now, you, get, you, you pick out the color, you go to the swatches. My wife loves the swatches. Do you like light teal green or green teal blue? And I'm like, I don't see the difference. Now, there's absolutely no difference between those two. No, it's completely different. So you pick out your swatch, and then you go and you get the can off the wall, right? The can off the rack, and you bring it to the guy, and you say, give me this color. Then he puts it in the machine, and what happens? Three different colors go inside and mix to create this unique blend of colors. Emotions are like that. They're like these multiple colors that pour into a paint can and then are stirred together so that every emotional experience is is a unique mixture of all these sort of primary colors of emotion. So you never feel them in isolation. That's the second thing about the nature of them. They're response to stimuli, and you never feel them in isolation. Uh, another thing about the nature of, mis- of, of, of emotions. They are not good or bad. They're not good or bad. Fear is not a bad thing. Shame is not a bad thing. Guilt is not a bad thing. They're not good things. They, they are good when used right, when they are the response, when they're the right response to a stimulus. Here's what I mean. Here's an example. I heard this great story. Uh, All my illustrations for this uh, include mountain lions. So um, there's a woman, and she's in Florida. Of course, it's Florida. And she, uh, her kids are out in the yard playing, and they come running inside, two little girls, and they go, Mommy, Mommy, there's a kitty on the roof. There's a kitty on the roof. And she goes, oh, well, great. Who cares? Go out and play. I'm trying to watch my show or whatever. And 
go back out and play. So she sends them back outside and they come back in and they go a few minutes later and they go, mommy, mommy, it's the biggest kitty we've ever seen. There's a kitty on the roof. Can we get up? Can we go pet it? Can we, can we get a ladder and go up on the roof and pet this kitty? And she's like, what are you talking ridiculous kids? And she finally, she's just like to get them to, you know, shut up. She just goes outside and, and, and turns around. And what does she see? There's a mountain lion on her roof. So whose emotional response was, so what is, what's her emotional response? Get inside, flee, run for your lives. She grabs them, pulls them inside. Now, whose emotional response was good? The mom's, right? Because her evaluation, she knew more. She evaluated the danger correctly. The children saw mountain lion and thought big, fluffy kitty. They evaluated it and let their emotions drive them into what would have killed them. Now, that's what we do with our emotions. Our emotions will drive us to act in ways that will kill us if we let them completely lead. They're not made to lead. They have a purpose, and that's the second point, the purpose of emotions. What are emotions for? Emotions do three things. Emotions communicate. They communicate to us about the deepest objects of our love. When you feel fear, for when that mom felt fear for her daughters over the mountain lion, what does that communicate about her love for them? That she loves them, right? She cares for them. Now, what would it communicate if I was out hiking with my kids and I heard that low growl in the bushes and I saw a mountain lion jump out and I said, all right, you're on your own, kids. Here, eat them and take off. <laughs> I don't have to outrun the mountain lion. I just got to outrun these little children and they got short legs. Easy. Right? What does that say about my love? It communicates something about my love, doesn't it? I care more about myself than them. If I'm willing to sacrifice them for me. Now, that's a terrifying example. It would never happen. I would gladly be eaten by a mountain lion to protect my daughters. But that's my point. My point is that emotions communicate the deepest loves of our hearts. And the way that we deal with those emotions and that, that communication of the deepest love, emotions function uh, like a check engine light in your car. You're all college students, so you probably all have hand-me-down cars, right? You, I'm, I'm planning, I'm, I keep telling my daughter, she's nine years old, well, I drive a, a Honda Accord, it's already got 150,000 miles on it, and I tell her, one day this beauty will be yours. You, know, uh, you go off to college, you can, you can take this with you. It'll have 600,000 miles on it by then. So you know what a check engine light is, right? Your parent, did, you prepare, did your parents actually prepare you for that before you went off to college? Like, tell you what a check engine light is? What, what are you supposed to do when the check engine light comes on? Call the shop. Go get it plugged in, right? Did somebody say get a piece of tape? Here's the thing. Here's, here's what we do. Not, that's a perfect example because here's what we do with emotions. It's the check engine light. The emotion flashes, the check engine light comes on, and we go, the right response 
is to go get this checked out. I need to plug this into one of those. I need to get this evaluated. I need to evaluate this problem. It isn't the problem. The light isn't the problem. The emotion isn't the problem. The emotion and the light are something that are pointing to a deeper problem that you need to get evaluated and find out what that deeper problem is. So here's what we do with emotions. We either put a piece of tape over it and just go pretend like it's not there. And what happens then? Your parents get real mad eventually, right? Because (laughs) you're on the side of the road and you're calling dad and you're saying, uh, my, the engine just locked up and stopped on my, on my, on this wonderful 600,000 mile Honda you left me. And the first question he asked, has, has there anything been going on with it? Is there, oh, well, the check engine light's been on for six months, but I just put a piece of tape over it. Well, of course that's the problem. You need to change the oil. You need to look at, you should have taken it to a mechanic and got it checked out. And that's what happens with our emotions. If you just cover it up, if you just stuff it down, if you put a piece of tape over it, pretend like it's not there, eventually something inside you is going to lock up. Something inside you is going to seize. And you are going to have that havoc and that chaos inside you that at that point will be much more difficult to repair. Because dealing with our emotions is also like, I used to have this cherry tree in my backyard. It, but it wasn't like good cherries. It was like cherries that only birds could eat. They were like uh, wild, weird cherries that tasted terrible. And so they were basically like a nuisance tree. But they dropped these cherries all over the rest of the yard. And so when you go out into the yard, you had to pull up. Part of, part of your yard work was pulling up these little cherry trees. And they were easy. You had a piece of cake. When they're this big, you just pull them out and throw them away. Now, what happens if I just ignore that, that job for a while? Let those cherry trees grow. Let's say 10 years I ignore these little cherries. Can I just pluck them up out of the ground now? No, now I need a chainsaw. I need a, I need a tree company to come out and cut them down. I need, there's a lot more work involved. I need a stump grinder. And that's what will happen to your emotions. You let the, let, you let the things just sit and do nothing and, have, and give no response to them. Because their, their second purpose, they communicate. And their second purpose is to motivate us towards action. Think through the scenario with the mountain lion again. Or fear, any, any kind of fear. You're, you're evaluating as some, something as out of your control, something that will devour and destroy you. You evaluate it. And your body triggers into to, tells you to flee. It's motivating an action, and the action is what's right or wrong. Now your emotions can lie to you, just like the children. They made the wrong evaluation, and their emotions were telling them go pet the kitty. So they do they need to follow that motivation? No, I was telling kids at VBS this morning, Charlie knows. Uh, Can you follow your heart? (laughs) Can you trust your heart? Everybody in this world will tell you, trust your heart, trust your, follow your heart, follow your heart. Jeremiah says that the heart of man is desperately wicked and sick. And who can know it? That's not something you can just follow. But 
Our hearts, our emotional reality is made to motivate certain kinds of actions. But it's based on our evaluation of things. And we'll talk about this. I want to give you these pieces right now. And we'll come back to these three things as we talk about the different emotions. And we'll talk about what each emotion, how each emotion communicates what you love, the deep, what your deepest loves are. How each emotion motivates actions and what kinds of actions it's meant to motivate. And third, the third thing emotions are for is that they're meant to connect us to one another. Emotions enable us to have deeper intimacy with one another. When, do you, when have you felt the most connected to another person? Was it when you had a cold, calculated uh, discussion about logic? I felt deeply connected to my logic professor when we were doing those uh, long-form logic equations and breakdowns. You felt deeply connected, right? No. You feel connected when you look somebody else in the eye and you know they feel the same that you do. And that's by design. We're designed to connect to each other on that emotional level. And God created us with that kind of emotionality so that we could be like the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, connect to each other on the deepest possible levels. And if you, if you don't know how to handle your emotions, you won't be able to connect to one another at the deepest level. And you won't be able to connect with God. We'll get into this. This is kind of the capstone. But what is the beginning of wisdom? What is the beginning of wisdom? Where does wisdom and the knowledge of God start? What are the, ba- what are the foundational principles of knowing God? Proverbs. To fear the Lord. Fear and emotion is the ABCs, the fundamentals of knowing God. You do not know God if you do not properly evaluate Him in such a way that you have an emotional response to it. And if you are not having an emotional response to who He is, you are not properly evaluating Him. You do not understand who He is if it does not stir your heart to hear of His love for you. You do not understand who He is if it does not make you quake in your boots with fear a little bit when you sin and realize how holy He is. That's the beginning of your relationship with God is a trembling, is an emotional connection to God. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, says that The goal of sanctification is the perfection of fear. We'll talk more about that when we get to fear. So emotions are very important. They connect us to one another. All right. Open your Bibles. I want to do this real... I want to do this quick. Exodus 34. Because here's the thing. God designed us... As emotional beings, we are, why, why would God design us as emotional beings? We are created in the image of God, in the image and likeness of God. What that means is everything about you is a finite version of something that is infinite in God. Everything about you 
Everything that God has designed in you, everything about you is this finite version of something infinite in God. So that means God is an emotional God. Now, I'm not just extrapolating that out either. Here is in Exodus 34, we have the first self-disclosure. What does that mean? Self-disclosure. He opens himself up. Yahweh, the God of the universe, opens himself up to Moses and says, I'm going to pronounce my name. I'm going to pass in front of you. I'm going to pass before you. And I'm going to tell you my name. I'm going to explain who I am at the deepest core of my being. At the deepest part of who I am, here is what I am. And he says this in Exodus 34. Yahweh, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, and the third and fourth generation. All right. It's clear as mud, right? God's an emotional God. There you go. You got it. Merciful. All right. Let's get into some Hebrew. You guys like Hebrew? I like Hebrew. I like it. It's on my arm. So <laughs> here's the deal. The first word out of God's mouth when he's describing who he is is this word rahum. Rahum. He says, I am rahum. You want to know who I am? You want to know the first thing about me? I am rahum. Now, the Hebrew word rahum means womb. It means a woman's womb. He says, you want to know what my relationship to my people is like? You want to know how deeply I feel and, and, and am connected to you? It is like I am a mother carrying you in my womb. You may have had parents who were pregnant and you've seen the process, the whole thing. But every little move when my wife was pregnant, every, they, she, knew when, she knew what direction the child was facing at any given time. She knew where their elbow was or their knee. or She knew because they were inside of her. And the Lord is saying, you're like that to me. You're like, it's like you're in my womb. I am so deeply connected to you. That's the first word out of his mouth. A deeply, deeply emotional word. Then he says, I'm also gracious. I show favor, uh, delight. Of This word is, is a word that means I delight in things. I show delight that people don't deserve. I show delight in the undelightful. I give my delight to those who don't deserve it. And then, of course, he's an angry God. He's a terrible, angry, fiery God, right? That's what we know about God and his emotions, right? That's the only one we're really comfortable ascribing to him. Anger, and he's a really fiery, angry God, right? Is that what that says? No. It says, yes, I get angry, but I'm slow to anger. Slow to anger. And this, in the Hebrew, it's great. It, it literally says he has a long nose. <laughs> so the Hebrew word for anger, for, for anger is off, and it means nose. 
It means nose. And so when you, the way you say somebody got angry is you say their nose burned. You say their nose was on fire. Their nose... And think about it. When you're angry, what, what do you start to feel? What's the first thing you start to feel? Your face starts to get hot, right? And your nose turns red. Your cheeks turn red because blood is rushing to your face. And that word that they use to describe this anger is... Uh, it describes the physical phenomena of being angry. Your face gets hot. Your, your nose gets hot. And the Lord says, you know what I am? I, he, he kind of, it's, to say a fuse is kind of uh, anachronistic to the text, but it's kind of like he's saying, I got a really long nose. There's a long fuse. It takes a long time for it to burn down until I explode with anger. My anger is always just And it's always as slow as it can possibly be. Now, that's not how we think about God's anger. In general, I would contend. I'm abounding, he says, in steadfast love and faithfulness. Even these words are sort of deeply emotional words. Love, steadfast love. My love is more than it's more than it's more than an emotion it's a commitment it's a loyalty but that commitment and loyalty is the garden where the emotion of the emotions associated with love can grow and he says i build that kind of garden for my people now why in the world is it important to understand that god is an emotional god that he actually has emotions, that they're real. Because you become what you worship. You become what you worship. And if you worship a cold and distant God who has no compassionate, merciful, gracious, delighted concern in you, you you worship a God who can't feel connected to you, who can't feel love for you, who doesn't know how you feel, who can't connect to you at the deepest parts of you. You worship that God, what do you become? You become cold, you become distant, you become disconnected, unable to connect to yourself, unable to connect to God, unable to connect to one another. So it's important that we understand who God is, that he is an emotional being, and he's created our emotions to be good things that mirror him. Now, this is a little aside. To talk about God's emotions, I could, I could, I'm being recorded right now, so I could be accused, if I don't, if I don't put this nuance in, somebody's going to accuse me of heresy. Because in the Westminster Confession, Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, what is God? He is uh, a spirit, infinite and eternal in his being, in his, uh, in his uh, being, wisdom, power, and truth. Without passions. He's a being, it says, without passions. And we to interpret that to mean he's without emotions. He has no emotions, right? Oh, I'm going against the catechism, right? You just drum me out of here. Now, hear me out. Westminster Short Catechism was written, you know, 400 years ago. And so words meant different things then. And passions had a very specific definition that we don't use now. It meant 
that he is not bound to respond to things outside of himself beyond his choosing to be bound to them. Now, that's a complicated sentence. God's a complicated being. Here's the thing to take away. God does not change, but his responses to you and his emotional connection to you are real. Those are the important things to understand. He really is an emotional being who really does respond to you. He's just, he's, because he's outside of time, he has ordained, ordains all things. He's ordained and prepared those, your actions and his response to them. So, that's the little aside that keeps me from uh, losing my ordination or something. Getting drummed out of the PCA. The language we use to talk about God's emotions, it's what we call like anthropopathic. Anthropomorphic language. Anthropopathic means like human. I like these big words. Don't y'all love that? Don't you love when we take uh, uh, big, uh, we take simple concepts and put big words on them and make ourselves sound smarter? Um, That's what we do. And so this idea, all it means is that the language we use to talk about God is we have to talk about him by comparing him to us. But that's the right thing to do, right? Because how does God talk about himself? He made us like him so he could talk about himself to us by comparing himself to us. He gave you points of connection between his being and your being so that you could have this connection. So we become like what we worship. And we've got this, uh, the big, the, so we need to understand God's emotional nature. He deeply feels everything that we feel. He's deeply connected to us and desirous of us. In Exodus 34, uh, 14, later on, he says, my very name. You want to sum up what my name is? Jealous. My name is Jealous. You want to know what kind of God I am? I'm the kind of God that anybody looks sideways at my wife, I'll knock them. I'll knock them out. I'll cold cock them. Like I, <laughs> that's, the kind, that's what this word jealous means. It's the jealousy that a husband has over his wife. He says, you want, to know what I, you want to know who I am? Cross my people. Cross my beloved. Talk, talk, talk to my wife that way and watch, and watch what happens. That's what kind of God I am. That's an emotional word, an emotional idea. And our very salvation, the fact in John chapter 2, Jesus goes to the temple and he runs out the money changers. He gets angry. I actually became a believer reading these verses. He goes, uh, a youth pastor who I worked with at a machine shop challenged me. I told him to leave me alone so much. He just told me he was annoying me. I worked at a machine shop so he could get me as a captive audience all the time. And uh, his machine was a computer-controlled machine. He could just set it up to run. And every time I heard it whir up, I knew about five minutes later he was going to be over here in my hip pocket telling me about Jesus. And it was going to be the most annoying thing in the world. I was reading uh, to my daughters uh, a few, few weeks ago, and I, I was reading a Dr. Seuss book, Green Eggs and Ham, and I realized this is my testimony. Uh, green Eggs and Ham. This man Jody was... Uh, Sam, I am coming over. Try Jesus. Try him. Would you? Would you try him with a fox? Maybe you want him in a box. Try Jesus on a plane. Try him in a boat with a goat, you know. And I didn't want Jesus on a boat. I didn't want him on a goat. I don't want him with a fox. I didn't want him on a plane or in a train. 
And finally, he just said, listen, try him. Try him. Go home and read the Gospel of John and come back tomorrow and tell me what you think of him. So I did. And I got to chapter 2 before I was on my face. In John chapter 2, Jesus runs the money changers out. And in John chapter 2, it says this very this little phrase that blew my mind. He made a whip. He made the whip. Now, why is that important? That seems ridiculous. Why is that little detail important? Why is it in there? Because you get this picture of Jesus walking in and seeing the adultery, the spiritual adultery that's happening in his very house, in his father's house. Here are these people in here destroying everything that it was meant to be, barring the nations from coming in, barring people from coming to God. When this house was designed to be a place where people could come and enter into God's presence and to be a means by which they could sacrifice and look forward to Christ's sacrifice on their behalf. And they're destroying all of that. And so he's furious. He's furious. And what does he do? Does he, does he just lash out? Start destroying things? Does he call down fire from heaven? Like John and James asked him to at one point. Hey, can we just call down fire from heaven on these people? He's like, listen, guys, you, got, yeah, you don't get it. I'm not here to call down fire on other people. I'm here to bring fire down on me so it doesn't come down on others. And he says, he, he, he runs out the money changers. He goes and he makes the whip. So I just get this image of him going down to the nearest leather stall and taking, you know, Judas was the money keeper, we find out later. And he goes, hey, hey Judas, uh, give me a couple of coins. I got to run down and get something real quick. Gives him some money. He goes down to the lo- local leather dealer. Hey, man, I, I need about six strips of leather, about yay long. And, uh, yeah, oh, those ones look good. Yeah, cow, you know, goat hide is fine. You know, I don't, have, I don't have that kind of cow hide money. Just give me the goat skin. All right, perfect. And then he walks back leisurely, weaving the thing together, making this whip. And then, in that moment, when he gets back, resumes his anger, picks it right back up, and chases them all out. Now, that, what does that show? That shows someone utterly in control of their emotions. Utterly aware of what they're for and, what, and, and utterly aware, making a right evaluation of the evil that he's seeing and what ought to be done, and yet utterly in control. And they see, they say, the disciples, after they see this, it says that they remembered this from Isaiah. Zeal or jealousy, the same word. They remembered that it was said of him, of the Christ, jealousy for my house, zeal for my house will consume me, will consume him. How are you going to know the Christ? He's going to be so ate up with jealousy for God's people, so ready to lay himself down to protect them, that it's going to consume him like a fire. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He allowed the fire that should have been called down on you. You deserve the fire. You deserve the fire. You earned the fire. The wages of sin is, we're all, you know, much of it, many of us are doing the bridge to life thing with VBS. The wages of sin is death. You've earned it. But then he paid it. And he did it. What motivated him? What motivated him to go through that for you? 
Was it cold, calculated? Was it, was it distant? Was it far off? No. Hebrews says it was the joy set before him that moved him to, to take that death in your place. The joy. Now, what was that joy? At the Father's right hand are joys, happiness, love, happiness, joy, rejoicing forevermore, eternal, immortal, infinite happiness. He had happiness. He had joy. So what was he after? What was the joy that made him go? It was you. It was you. It was having you. He said, heaven is great. My Father is great. Eternity is great. But I I want them here. I don't need them. But I want them, and I want them with me, and I want them to know our joy. I want them to know our life. I want them to be part of the eternal life of God, and I will die to make it happen. That is not a cold, passionless, distant God. That is the God of the passion of the cross. And he is passionate for you. Now, when you know that, when you understand that that was in his heart. You feel the connection to him because you have felt passionate about things like that before, I hope. So you feel that deep connection to him because you know, I've, I've felt like that before in a small way. And that's what our emotions are for, ultimately, to connect us to God. They're a summons to come up into his presence, to evaluate them, and to be changed by who he is as our emotional God, not a cold, distant being. That's the opening lesson, lecture, sermon. I told you I was going to turn into a sermon. It always does. Uh, Let me pray for us. And next week, uh, we'll be talking about happiness and God, the happy God. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are a compassionate God, gracious and slow to anger. I thank you that you are an emotional God, that you do feel that, that there is an emotional reality to you that is even, it's not less than ours. We're not, we don't have more than you because we have emotions. We have far less because our emotions are finite and misguided. Teach us these coming weeks to be transformed by the knowledge of you, the emotional God. Help us to connect to you on that very deep level by the power of your spirit. Your spirit, who knows the heart of a person but the spirit of that person. And your spirit you have put in us. You have given us your spirit so that you can connect with us on this deep emotional level. Help us to connect with you. Fix our broken hearts. Fix our cold, distant ideas of you. And help us to rejoice in the emotionality that you have designed us to experience and to have and to use it, to take that emotionality and to to use it for the proper righteous motivations. Help us to understand who we are, who you've designed us to be so that we might become more like Jesus Christ, your Son, through whom I pray the one who lives though he was dead for our sakes. He lives and he reigns with you. Together with the Holy Spirit, one deeply compassionate and jealous God. 
forever to be praised. Amen.